Hi, I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Good evening. Um, Tonight's talk is with a force of nature confronting the natural world. For the last four summers, Barbara Ray has gone to the Northwest Passage, to the northwest part of Canada, into the Arctic Circle, in the footsteps of her namesake, but not her relative, John Ray, and has produced an extraordinary body of work, from sketchbooks to watercolours, works on paper drawings and canvases, uh, which formed the basis of a substantial and very impressive exhibition at the Royal Scottish Academy in Edinburgh in the summer. A part of that went to Orkney, which is part of the journey that anyone going in search of the Northwest Passage, John Ray in particular, would have made, although Ray himself was from Orkney. And then, recently, a smaller part of the exhibition has come to that part of London, which will be forever Canada, Canada House. So partly as a commemoration of the opening of the exhibition yesterday in Canada House, uh, partly because there's a book published by the Royal Academy, and partly as a celebration of the Royal Academy's 250th birthday, of which Barbara's three exhibitions form uh, part of the celebration, and also because she's a compelling artist with whom I've always wanted to have a public conversation. Would you please welcome to the stage, Barbara Ray. And just to let you know, afterwards, uh, with the incentive of a free drink and 15% off, we're going to walk you through to the uh, Academy's bookshop in the other side where you can buy work and Barbara will be signing catalogues. I just thought I'd say that when she's here. Um, Thank you. Barbara, the, the, the idea of journeying and responding to or using the landscape as a trigger is clearly central to your practice. But what made you decide that the Northwest Passage was the place you wanted to go to? Because it's a fairly extreme part of the world, isn't it? It was quite unexpected, actually. I didn't plan it, because most of my work has been concerned with hot places, Arizona, Spain, New Mexico. But I went to Orkney, and I was walking along Stromness High Street, and I saw the name Ray, and I thought, hmm, that's a bit odd. And then there was the newsagent Ray, and then there was Ray Passage, and then there was the Franklin uh, Well, Loggins Well, where Franklin's ships took on water before they went across uh, the passage to Greenland. And then I got fascinated, ended up in Stromness Museum, where there's a fantastic very intimate display of John Ray artefacts. And there's a a wonderful reconstruction of John Ray himself in a furry hat sitting in a reproduction halkett boat. Now, the halkett boat was quite central to some of John Ray's journeys. Um, And Mr. Halkett invented it. And it was an early inflatable so that they could... uh, It was a rubber boat so they could pump it up, and then sail across these, the, the rough terrains, carry up waterfalls in Canada. There's just a little lake every five seconds. And then they could repack it and put it on a backpack. So Mr. Halkett was way ahead of his time. And so the, the idea gradually formed that I should follow in John Ray's footsteps because as a child at school in Creef, uh, in Perthshire, I had a very inspiring geography teacher. And I loved geography because it meant that I could draw maps. And I loved maps. And that meant that I wasn't doing maths. <laughs> and I couldn't do maths. Actually, I was, I was given the belt in Morrison's Academy in Grief for not being able to do maths. And so I loved geography and I was, loved colouring in my maps. And she spoke about the Northwest Passage, and I thought, that's so exotic, and one day I'm going to do that. And I kept thinking about it, and then there was the news that a Russian icebreaker had gone through the passage. And I thought, that's got to be possible now. And a lot of things coincided. I met with people who encouraged me along the route, people who had been to the Antarctic uh, through a company called Ice Tracks, 
And uh, I got in touch with them, and my first journey was planned. And that was it. I didn't know what to expect. And I suppose living in Scotland, you are prepared for some sort of cold. But I wasn't actually prepared to don three layers, top and bottom, of thermal underwear. Funny enough, younger visitors to the Royal Academy will still be reading with the idea that you were belted as a, yes. as a student. But, but, but anyway, that, <laughs> obviously that's, that, that is as nothing compared to the elements here. Yes. <laughs> I love the fact this is taken by Ian Ritchie. Yes. Uh, and that fellow Royal Academician. Um, before we go to that, the, the extremity of this climate, um, did, that, did that in itself appeal to you or was that only apparent when you got there? I think I enjoy extremes anyway because uh, so much of the work that I did in the Arizona series was in tremendously difficult desert conditions in 100 degrees heat, seeking for shade. And uh, so I wanted a complete contrast. I was ready for it, you know, because I spent probably 15 years working with quite a hot palate and I, I thought I'd really enjoy the challenge of potentially working with a cool palate, as I expected, but nothing is as you expect in the Arctic. Nothing can prepare you for the scale, the emptiness, the sort of barren wastes, and the, the eerie feeling that you get. But of course, all of, all of that, the journey had to begin with the history. I don't want to go anywhere to just paint landscapes. The landscape uh, had to be bound up with the story, the history of John Ray, the search for Franklin, and that was always uppermost in my mind. And well, I have to say, you, you, you ruined my life, because when you started telling me about this whole saga, I took sort of months out to read the various accounts. By the way, if you get involved in a conversation with Barbara, her own curiosity and research, she's very generous. She gave me a reading list and then sent me book after book, which are absolutely <laughs> compelling, about the whole saga of Franklin. I mean, Michael Palin's book, Erebus, is late to the party on this. Yes, one. I'm yes. glad he's written it. Mm. But it is an extraordinary saga, isn't mm. it? Of, it is. Of, of kind of failure and her heroicism. But curiously, British, the British establishment closing ranks yeah. and, and actually traducing the reputation of an honourable man and quite why John Ray would have been traduced in that way is it's still staggering, I think. Well, that was all to do with Lady Franklin. Lady Franklin, cannibalism, <laughs> Charles Dickens yeah. and others. Yeah. yeah, Read the books, we'll give you the reading list later. <laughs> but, but I do love the idea that, um, that you... You, you research, and it's an ongoing saga of research, mm. which I suppose is answers to the question, why one journey is not enough? It's never enough. No, no. And uh, my husband said recently, you're not going back again, are you? <laughs> I said, mm -hmm. oh, well, I might go to Iceland or whatever. But it's a total journey of discovery, and... Uh, this image that we're looking at is uh, one of the most haunting places that I went to in the Northwest Passage because this is Beachy Island where the graves of the sailors who died first from the Franklin 1845 uh, expedition. Uh, they, they had to overwinter in this totally desolate place. I mean, it looks all right just now. It's fine, you know, because... It's early September and it's still quite warm and there's a nice blue sky and there's this wonderful beach. Um, but to think of these sailors being buried here underneath the shale because it was actually very difficult to dig the graves. And the, the, the grave markers, um, the original ones are in a, a museum in Ottawa and the, they were the replacement ones. But it's a totally haunting place. And this is you recording it in your sketchbooks. How, how, what's the routine or the rhythm when you're on the boat? And, I mean, the journey is, what, three, four weeks. Are you working every day? Can you determine the rhythm of work? Or is it a question of, you know, when you stop at a place, you have to get off and you have an hour or two? And, and I mean, how much are you in control of, 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 of what happens? Well, the first journey I did, I didn't know how I was going to handle this. 
because I was with a large group of people, all of whom had different interests. Some of them were bird watchers, some of them were archaeologists, marine biologists. They all had different interests. And uh, I quickly understood that I wasn't going to be able to go on land and sit there and do a painting. That was going to be impossible. First of all, it was too cold to do that. Um, But always when we went on land, we had to have a guide with a gun in case there was a polar bear coming along. (laughs) So... so, So what I had to do was, and it's completely unlike anything I've ever done before, I had to take the photographs and we would go out on a trip in these Zodiac boats, the souped up uh, inflatables uh, following on from Halkett, and I would take the photographs and immediately go back to my cabin, which I'd turned into a studio. I had my desk and I had a piece of plastic and I would sit there and do the paintings. But I would immediately put them onto my computer and work from them. And I wouldn't take part in any of the events. There were always talks on polar bears, birds, (laughs) photography, everything, that were put on to entertain the passengers. I didn't do any of that. I just sat in my little studio and I did the paintings. How, how, I love it. how far away were these bears? Wait a minute, I've got to talk to you about these bears. This is the polar boys. I, I suspect they're, they're maybe two-year-old cubs because they're still quite friendly with one another. <laughs> and Because otherwise they'd be tearing one another apart. This is a place called Conningham Bay. And it's a, it's a, a precious Inuit site uh, for hunting beluga whales. So the Inuit go up to this bay, and it's a very shallow bay with a sandy bottom. And there's a ridge before the beluga go into the bay. So the beluga come in, and the beluga are white uh, whales. So they want to rub their skin on the, on the sandy bottom. They want to exfoliate their skin. <laughs> and that's, that's really nice for the beluga. Unfortunately, the Inuit know this, and so the beluga can't get back out again from this shallow bay until high tide. So the Inuit go along and they slaughter uh, the beluga. It's all a very nice cycle, of course, because the Inuit take the muktuk, which is the skin and blubber of the beluga. They take as much as they can, and they probably take a fillet of whale, as much as they can get in their small fishing boat, and then they leave the rest for the polar bears. And so when we arrived at Conningham Bay on this occasion, there were loads of polar bears, there were probably about 30 polar bears, feeding on the, on the beluga, uh, because there was no sea ice. Now the polar bears hunt from sea ice, they can't swim huge distances to catch prey. So if they, they are hunting from the land, they can only go out maybe a mile. And if they don't catch a seal or something in that mile, they've had it. They've got to go back. And so on this occasion in Conningham Bay, there was no sea ice around, but the polar bears were being sustained by what the Inuit had caught for them. So it's a nice relationship. It is, yeah. I mean, it's a sustainable relationship from exfoliation to feeding. But it's also quite brutal. Um, does, did that, does that brutality interest you? Well, I didn't, I didn't feel it was brutal at all. I thought it was a nice, cheery families, family get-together. I guess so, <laughs> except you've got, except you've got your, gu- your guys with guns um, to protect you from... No, in this, in this case, we weren't on land. We are not allowed to go on land if there's a a sighting of a polar bear. So we can't, particularly in the journeys that I did with the company that I went with, uh, they're not going to disturb the, the whole system. Uh, so we're, at this point, we're in the, the, in the zodiacs going very, very quietly along, along the, the shoreline and trying as best as we can to photograph the bears you know, while keeping really quiet so we don't disturb them. Um, 
But one of the things I, I suspected, I said to one of the, the tour leaders, I said, you're paying these in yet to go up there, aren't you? <laughs> so that the, the tourists can get nice photographs. But look at how fat that polar bear is. Sure. So what they do, the, the, the polar bears, they eat, then they sleep. Then they eat and sleep. And they do that as long as the food's there. And they don't argue with one another if everybody's got enough food. And this is, this is from last year, where there was sea ice, and we came upon a mother with uh, two cubs. And the, the big ship quietly followed the bears through the ice floes. And, you know, it was wonderful to watch them. But at some point, you know, the, the notion has to cut, you know, kick in that you don't follow the mother with the cubs because they're going to get tired trying to get away from the ship. And then they can turn on you. Um, I mean, on one level, you, you talk about the emptiness and the, and the wasteland, the, the wilderness, as well as the magic, which is in, certainly pre present in a lot of your work. Um, but also this, this relationship to Hudson's Bay, John Ray and all of that. Um, were, did, were you consciously, given your initial trigger... Did you feel you were following in his specific footsteps or was that just the beginnings of your own journey? How, how much did you feel it was a kind of, I say, a form of sort of archaeological or mapping follow, following a particular person? Well, a lot of it was to do with John Ray's relationship with the Hudson's Bay Company uh, because John Ray was an Orcadian and his father was the recruiting agent for the Hudson's Bay Company. Yeah. And in fact, the recruiting office was is now the Pier Art Centre in Stromness, where I had the Orkney exhibition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it all kind of really fitted in. Uh, but then I got increasingly drawn into the Franklin expedition. So a lot of the, the Northwest Passage, first part, is to do with Franklin and how he came to his end and the eventual uh, recruiting of John Ray who was by then a surgeon and a factor with the Hudson's Bay Company, the, the fur trading company. And because of his skills, he was sent out. He was loaned to the British Admiralty by Simpson, who was in charge of the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, because of his superior skills, unlike uh, Franklin. Well, Franklin's ship, I mean... It wasn't. You mentioned the Harkett boat. It wasn't. It wasn't practical in the end, was it? I mean, they literally got frozen in. But they were. They were carrying dinner services yeah. across the ice yeah. because standards had to be maintained. Whereas Ray was carrying a boat because mm. that would be the way to get. To, yeah. To get safe. But, but Ray always travelled light. He travelled with maybe maximum of fifteen men. He only travelled with a number of men that he could feed by shooting birds and animals. Whereas Franklin set out from London, the two ships loaded with stuff, libraries, cutlery, costumes for theatrical performances. It was as if the, the sort of entire sort of little palace was on, on, the, on the ship with no thought of what are we going to do if we can't survive because they had food for about four years and they had their naval outfits they didn't have anything they didn't have an interpreter they didn't think they needed one they had they had some shots um gun uh, what do you call them shot, shot people on on board who but they they were skilled at shooting birds they weren't skilled at shooting animals and really it's only the inuit that can uh, trap a seal and they didn't have any communication because they thought the Inuit were savages so they didn't want to have anything to do with them this is a Hudson's Bay hut uh, these Hudson's Bay company huts were uh, mostly built in the, the 20s uh, but I was particularly interested in the Hudson's Bay huts that were built at Fort Ross which was one of the historic sites that uh, Ray overwintered in. 
And I think you touched on it the other night, that uh, John Ray uh, was so close to the Inuit. He learned from the Inuit. Of course, he had learned such a lot from his upbringing in Orkney, shooting, hunting, fishing, sailing. He was an outdoors man, and, but he wanted to do it the best way he could. And so when, when he went to Canada... He learned from the Inuit. He learned their ways. He dressed as an Inuit. Very clever. And then he discovered when he wanted to build an overwintering hut. I can't remember where it was. But he built it as, he was, as if he was living in Orkney. And he built it out of stone. And they quickly found that it was freezing in the winter. And then the Inuit showed him how to build snow houses and they're incredibly cosy. He wondered why, when he was invited into an Inuit, uh, uh, what we call now an igloo dwelling, why the Inuit were all divested of all their clothes and were all cosy. And so he set about learning how to build an igloo, but he thought he would improve on it because he said, well, see all these gaps in the ice blocks I think we can fix that. We'll just pour boiling water over it, and that'll freeze, and then it'll be completely sealed. But that didn't work because there had no aeration anymore, and so it became horrible and steamy and cold inside. You, you mentioned Inuit and his relationship to them. In Canada House, in the exhibition, there, there are five sculptures from the Shankman Inuit collection, which you've selected. Um, were you conscious? Did you, were, you, were you aware of specific Inuit traditions when you went there? Or is this something you've just more recently encountered? Because they're very interesting sculptures, I think. They're, they're wonderful. They're from a slightly later period. Yeah, yeah. They're from the, the 20s, um, when the Inuit became encouraged to develop their, their craft skills. Um, but in Edinburgh, we had the honour to have this wonderful... Inuit collection from Aberdeen University, which were the objects that the Inuit themselves made at the time of John Ray, mm. including things like model, uh, model kayaks and model umiaks, which is the, the larger boat which the women and the children uh, used to sail in, and um, objects you know, like beautiful skin boots and ivory combs that were made... Uh, I was conscious of it because of all the books that we've been reading. I mean, the, the wonderful books that are, have come out in the last four years, particularly one by Ken McGugan, a, a Canadian uh, author, who's really done a lot to, to promote John Ray. And the first one that I read by Ken McGugan was Fatal Passage, mm. which, in which he begins to bring in the importance of the Inuit to uh, incoming people's survival in the Arctic. Can you imagine surviving in the Arctic? I was in a nice ship. It was warm. You know, I can't imagine even surviving in September. Well, I thought the Canadian High Commission made a really interesting point yesterday, which, which of course, Inuit artisanal traditions and crafts was often about survival. But they were makers. They were compelled to make... They made sculpture. Yes. And so, the, you know, the only people who lived in this part of the world... Were, they were predominantly artists or artisans, which, again, is, is, is interesting. Yeah, they were, making, they were making the objects that they were going to hunt and fish with, mm. and they, they would always imbue these with some sort of spiritual meaning, and so they would carve a little animal head, on, say, on a, a seal harpoon, and, of course, we regard these as very beautiful objects. But for them, it was spiritual because they had to, they had to catch the animal. That's just... Yeah, that's one of the zodiacs. And this extra... It's very difficult to get away from a sea of red coats. It is. But, so now we move, move to, to some of the, the canvases you produced. Um, how conscious are you of now looking at the work, of your response to, to something, which is the trigger, and your own visual language or sensibility 
as I say, imposing itself on the vision. But how much is this a trigger for, 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 for the realisation of your own artistic language now as a mature artist? And how much is the sense of place that which drives what you do? Because I find these incredibly powerful and atmospheric. But I'm also conscious that this is Barbara Ray. You know, it's mm. your touch, your yeah. sensibility. I think it's really important for me to have been there and hence the repeat journeys because I don't, I don't want to go somewhere and paint for two weeks and say, well, that's it, that was great. I'll go back and I'll paint. I know all about it. People say to me, why don't you go to India? You'll love it. I say, no, I won't love it because I won't know anything about it. So I've got to know all, all about it. So that's why I read so much about it and try to absorb all of that atmosphere and history. But when I was working on the, on the ship and working on small-scale things and, uh, you know, the sketchbook images, and uh, then I'm going home to Edinburgh, to the studio, and that's, that is a different experience because I'm not recreating what I saw. It's sort of ceased to become an iceberg, but it's become an image. And I can use the paint then to try and express what I saw. And of course, the scale is important as well because on the ship, I could only work on a small scale. But in the studio, you, you have the ability to create something new I'm not repeating, but I'm still thinking. And so at the end, of, the end of one year, I've got all these images in my mind of one of the voyages and all the experiences. But when it comes, it sort of gradually drains. And you get to the point where I think, well, I can't do any more. That's it. I've lost it. I have to go back. <laughs> how much do you use, when you're in the studio, how much do you use the sketchbooks and some of the, the, the images and works you've made on the, on the ship and how much are they a, a fuel but you, you basically when you're confronting the canvas it's just you and the canvas I always use the sketches I always use these as the prompt to move ahead as the kick start to the creative process mm. that's in the, the studio but quite often I would take an image like, like this one which is small scale and I would do a series of monoprints based on that, which kind of simplifies the whole image. And then I would use that monotype to move on and develop that as an image on, on a large-scale canvas. So by the time I get to a large-scale canvas, I know exactly what I'm going to do, but I never know how it's going to turn out. I've got this thing in my mind. And, you know, some of, some of the our most amazing abstract artists, you think, oh, well, that's incredible. How did they do that? And I'm particularly thinking about somebody like Bart Irvin, you know, who did, he did these huge, fantastic canvases. Bart worked it out in advance. He didn't just take, uh, you know, leave it to chance. You know, he had a, a, a basic plan. So I've got a basic plan. Otherwise, I'll be sort of wandering around and you know, the distance. So I've got a composition that I can work, work from. It's a bit like... So you know where you want to get to, but I love the idea you don't know how it's going to turn out. Haven't the faintest idea. So the process itself is another form of journey. That's right, yeah. Because you've got to allow... In the studio, I always remind myself, if I'm thinking about it, I'm not actually painting it. If you start to think about it, and you think about the decisions that you're making, uh, it's all over. You may as well go and have a cup of coffee. Or it becomes an illustration. That's right. It becomes a, re a repetition of what you've done already. This particular painting uh, underwent quite a lot of uh, repainting and revisiting uh, before I got it to where I wanted it to be. So it's quite difficult. I mean, at certain points, using water-based uh, paints on paper is, is really quite dangerous because you can lose the luminosity really quite quickly. And the same with a large-scale canvas. I've got to actually have a plan. If I deviate from the plan, that doesn't matter. I've got to get it back to what I want it. So if an iceberg turns out looking like a kind of coal tip, 
as it is, does here, is to do with the, the sharpness of the light. Um, you've got to deal with that in the creative process of trying to resolve, but it shouldn't prevent you from making dramatic changes uh, in the painting. It can take a completely different direction. It, let's just move that this is an extraordinary... So the detailing of your note-taking, some shorthand to you, and then we move through... Sorry, I'll go back. Yeah. Um, to some of the prints. To this kind of work. So I'm just giving a range there. Um, so everything starts with a physical encounter because you're there in the landscape noting it down in various ways. How, much, how conscious are you of the physicality of that which you're producing and the viewer's response? I mean, obviously, I feel very physically moved by a lot of these works. But are you thinking about that kind of thing or is that out of your control? I'm not thinking about the viewer at all. I'm only thinking about me. But, um, is, it a <laughs> but is it a transformation of one physical experience to another? The process is physical and the physicality of painting yes. is also... It emphasises the physicality of your immersion in the landscape. Yeah, well, the, the, the original studies are my response to the immediate elements. And then in the studio, that can become translated in various ways through monotype, through etching, through painting the large-scale canvases, all of which have tremendous technical difficulties that you've got to overcome in order to get to the end result. And luckily, with the, the prints, I find it really rewarding to work with a printmaker such as Mike Waite, yeah. who you see in the... That's Mike there. He's here, if you want to ask him any questions. That's Mike uh, inking up the, this big plate uh, for this uh, collagraph etching, which is on view in the red bar downstairs. Just thought I'd tell Beautifully you Beautifully done. <laughs> and, and so... You can see just there, actually, some of the stages that we went through to get to the end result of the print. You know, it just doesn't happen by magic. So there's no hierarchy for you between sketch, drawing, print, no. work on paper, canvas. They're different forms of exploring and expressing yes. similar things. Yep. In fact, the, the, the small-scale paintings, some of which are in Canada House can often be so much more difficult than the six-by-six six canvases. Um, I showed you the source picture here. This is conventionally and actually an extraordinarily beautiful image, a powerful image. Um, do you ever feel the need you, to escape that idea of beauty? Is that, is, I mean, that is so compellingly realised. Is there a danger that that does it all? I mean, I'd find that quite daunting to try and use as a... Well, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to use that as a starting point for a painting. What I was very interested in, in this series of works, which, which the, the photographs, which happened over two or three nights, was the change in the light and the, the change in the seasons, which meant that there was this bar of gold across the sea and the whole the whole vista form, yeah. was transformed but I couldn't possibly paint that uh, I think what I found much more fascinating were the other images where I loved the ice flows and the way in which they made the pattern against against the sky and the the sunset but the the one thing that I should note was the, the the three, four journeys were all different. The first one was like, wow, this is the Arctic. These are icebergs. And we're sailing down Lancaster Sound. And the guys are in the hot tub with their cocktails. There's an iceberg floating by. I thought, this is great sunshine, but very little sea ice. And that was a wonderful introduction to the, the Arctic. And then the second voyage was very different, very grey, dull, quite earthy colours, you know, nothing much happening. And then the third voyage was all about this amazing light. 
the light and the ice and the bringing me back to thinking, well, what was Franklin doing here? You know, he was sailing in these fragile little boats through the sea ice. How were they dealing with it? And that brings it all back. When you see the icebergs and you think about these ships sailing through that, the enormity of it. I mean, if you do the research, the, the, uh, the wonderful etchings uh, produced from the Arctic, you know, they show the real drama of trying to cope with the elements. And Franklin was just not prepared. Are you um, consciously interested in the sublime? They seem to me very much related to that tradition. No, not at all. I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just dealing with the problem of making a monotype. But, it's very difficult. But you've just talked about <laughs> the impressive nature of yes. the icebergs yeah. and that sense of, you hinted mm. at the sense of wilderness and the overwhelming elemental force or forces that Franklin was eventually defeated by. Yeah. Um, and I know it can be a shorthand, you know, when you look at people dealing exquisitely, deftly, poetically with light to go back to that tr British tradition that goes back to Turner and Constable. But it, it does seem to me that there is a relationship to that and that there is an element of you confronting elemental forces and your own position in relationship to that. I'm certainly conscious of my own position in relationship to the broader world when I look at these works. I think that's absolutely true. When you're in a small ship uh, in the middle of nowhere and you look out over the ocean and it looks like you're about to drop off the end of the world. And sailing through Bellot Strait, I'd certainly got that impression because Bellot Strait is this narrow channel between which separates the Arctic from the entire American continent. And it's a very narrow channel. And the first time we did it, uh, the captain very cleverly uh, arranged for us to sail into the sunset and it was a beautiful night and a very calm calm sea and at one point the the mountains came down and there was this bit of the sea and you thought right that's it we're going definitely going off the edge and for the early sailors I mean goodness what were they thinking it must have been really really scary indeed um, so You've done four journeys. You've made it clear to your husband that that may not be the end of it. Um, how, how much does... I mean, this is such... It's such a striking body of work. It's such an extraordinarily powerful part of the world that, whose magic and, and, and uh, power you're, you've harnessed or have been inspired by. How much does this take over your entire practice? How, how much do you, can you compartmentalise this? How much is the rest of your year dominated by the experience of this and the work you're producing and the fact you might do another journey? And how much is it, you're, are you able to do other things? Well, that's it. You know, that, that's my reality for the last four years. So I go to Ireland every year yeah. uh, to Ballon Glen Arts Foundation where I get peace and quiet to, to work on some of the paintings that I've been creating for the last few years. Uh, but for the first year, uh, the first voyage, I could balance working in Ireland, doing works from, you know, the, the kind of inspiration that I've always found in Ireland, and works from the Arctic. But then the second and third year, I couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. So when I go to Ireland, I'm shutting out Ireland and I'm actually just working in the studio there on the Arctic. And uh, it's been quite difficult because I would have wanted to have exhibited some of the Arctic works, but I wanted to keep them all together and keep them within context. And I wanted to look at the continuity of the works. Yeah. So I wanted to have them around me to see what the development was and... Uh, in a lot of cases, certainly with the monotypes, which I regard as part of my sketchbook, uh, to actually see them going to nice homes is quite difficult for me. I want to keep them. But we must move on. And, and also, yeah, what am I going to do next? <laughs> well, 
it's so a leg. you're clearly a, a, say a serial artist. I mean, as in, yeah. in this, or when you encounter something as, as dramatic as this, has that always been the case that when you encounter something, it becomes all embracing, or have you been able to be more um, compartmentalized? Have you have you worked in, in different ways? No, no. So it's, <laughs> so the career is linear in that sense. Yes. So whatever I'm working on has to be it. I have to get completely immersed in it. And it's quite interesting for me to look back on the Arctic work, well, I'm still doing it, but to look back on the Arizona work mm -hmm. where I was intensely involved in uh, the history of the Anasazi Indian and the traces of uh, petroglyphs and pictographs that they left as signs to their life 4,000 years ago. So that took a long time. And I reluctantly left that behind because of the, you know, the inability of me to get back to Arizona as often as I would like. So if I was going to revisit that theme, which I would like to do, I would have to spend quite a bit of time back in Arizona. I can't just look at my sketchbooks and recall, oh, yeah, that's what it was like. Okay, I'll paint Arizona. Can't do that. When did this method of working crystallize and when did you feel you'd found your own artistic language or voice I mean how soon after art school after Edinburgh art school did this become clear that it was a way, way to work I think it actually happened at Edinburgh College of Art and it was the way that we were taught at that time we had a wonderful teacher who uh, had the misfortune to teach us in first and second year and uh, he had a passion for working outside. So he'd get us all together every Wednesday and take us somewhere. So we'd all get into the bus and he would take us to a coal mine or a brickworks or to a harbour. And as soon as we got there, we all disappeared. And he was left wandering around looking for us. But the experience of doing that meant that that's the way I was working. That, that's the way that I was finding uh, how to work and then gradually I realized that my love of geography and maps was really crucial to the way I was working and the history the, com the combination of, of all of these was really important um, and which artists have you most consistently revered or learned from mm, that's quite difficult <laughs> or does that um, always does that change frequently no, it used to change. Yeah. Um, obviously, as a student, uh, we, were, we were so lucky in Edinburgh College of Art. Edinburgh College of Art had a, a lot of money, so we were always going places. We were sent to Paris, we were sent to London, and, also, and of course, we were sent down for all the big exhibitions. And I remember seeing the Goya exhibition. I think it was here, wasn't it? Mm. And that totally influenced me. So when I got back to Edinburgh College of Art, I was painting my life paintings in, in sort of silvers and blacks with little touches of colour. And then, of course, we saw the Bon Art exhibition as well. And that was totally influential. Uh, so seeing these things and learning from these things and taking that back to the studio and trying to think about what... I had learned, obviously, there's a big difference between uh, Goya, uh, Goya and... Uh, Bonnard, yeah. And Bonnard. But consistently, the people that I admire just happen to be Spanish artists. So Velasquez is my big hero. And Picasso, I kind of came late to Picasso because I thought everybody liked Picasso. He can't be that good, can he? <laughs> And so gradually I learned the error of my ways and I just adore Picasso, Miro, and... Uh, it's pretty, there's not a single artist you mentioned there, who, apart from Bonnard, who one could look at the work we've just looked at of yours and think, oh yeah, there's a direct connection. But actually, so it's, it's a kind of range of approach. I want to talk to you about Diebenkorn briefly though, because you knew him, didn't you? I met him in Santa Fe, yeah. Yeah. Did, did, was there a shared sensibility in any way? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, because if you look at Diebenkorn's uh, work and progression, yeah. it's very, very logical because I, I, I haven't read uh, a lot of learned treatises on, on Diebenkorn. It's only my own idea that I, I know that he was influenced by Bonnard and Riard. 
and then he moved on uh, to... Matisse a little. Yeah, and Matisse. And he uh, lived in California. And you can see the progression. And when I was teaching in Glasgow School of Art, the students loved Diebenkorn because they could see the way he had developed his work. And at the end of the light, towards the end of his life, the Ocean Park series. Mm. Uh, and always when I go to Los Angeles, I go up and down Ocean Park all the time because I, th- I know I know exactly what he was doing, you know, I, how he conceived the composition of the Ocean Park series. Uh, yeah, David Korn is one of my big heroes. And I invited him uh, to come to Scotland to tour the Scottish Art Colleges. And he was very enthusiastic because his wife's uh, relatives came from the islands. I think it was Lewis or Harris. And he was really keen to do that. But unfortunately, that didn't get organised before he passed away. There's an amazing sense of place with his work, but it is, it is an abstraction too, mm-hmm. isn't it? it yes. Is, it, 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 in some ways, it resonates with what you're talking about, is it becomes a trigger, but then it becomes about the process. It becomes about the painting. Yeah. 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 So you've, um, you're still not sure whether you're going to go back, but I'm pretty sure you are. <laughs> um, do you have a sense how long, and, um, or, or when will you know that you've worked through all this? I mean, that's a slightly abstracted question because you'll, you'll only know when you know. But how, how does that make itself manifest? I love your t- description earlier about you feel drained. You know, you've, you've almost used everything that you want, so you need to go back. Yes. But will there come a point, that, that, do you think it's soon, where you'll need to, 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 to think elsewhere? And that, will that involve another journey? Or is it still too early to say? It is too early to say, really. Um, a lot of people have said to me, why don't you go to the Antarctic? Well, I don't fancy that at all because it's all penguins and stuff. I mean, there's no, there's no land. And the people. The, well, there's, there's the wonderful stories, aren't there, of uh, Scott and the whole story of Antarctic explore, exploration. But I just don't get it at all. And I just don't want to go and paint icebergs. It's funny, I asked someone yesterday a very odd question because they'd been to Antarctic. I said, what does it smell like? And they said... <laughs> Penguin shit. <laughs> just like unromantic. What, how, how does the Northwest Passage smell? Oh, it just smells of the, of the sea and clean air. And, of course, the, the cruise companies say, oh, you'll see lots of wildlife. It'll be fantastic. The whales will be going like that. And never saw a whale. <laughs> Apart and from the, a rotting one. That's yeah, devoured rotting by one. Yeah, and, and I think uh, somebody at some point spotted an narwhal, which, which are the ones with the, the long tusk. Yeah. They were about four miles away. <laughs> and we saw walrus, and we saw loads of polar bears. And the, the bird watchers were extremely happy about <sighs> the, all, all the birds that they saw. But one of the other things that I thought was very interesting, and obviously... We, we should all be concerned about it, is the uh, use of plastics in the Arctic. And on all the voyages I was on, there were scientists from Vancouver who were doing uh, experiments. They were taking samples in the Arctic to find out how many microparticles were in the Arctic Sea so that they could judge how far the pollution had gone. So I find that fascinating. And, and it's, worry, an on- it's worrying, isn't that's it? That's an ongoing concern. Yeah. And also the, the recession of the glaciers. Yeah. You know, the, we were in a, a place, a Canadian Arctic settlement called Pond Inlet. And one of our local guides said, I've been here for 15 years. And that glacier over on that island has receded halfway up the mountain since I've been here. And so that's, that's a great concern. The, in, in the Arctic, obviously, more so in the Canadian Arctic, uh, because the Greenland Arctic, having been under the influence of Denmark for so long, it seems to be a bit more organised. But in the Canadian Arctic, I think they've got a huge problem with the, disposable, the disposal of plastics mm. and man-made goods because they can't bury them because of the permafrost. So what do they do with them? And so it's a big concern, and pollution in the Arctic. 
And the other thing that is a big concern over the four years is that there's an increasing number of cruise ships coming into the Arctic with, uh, say, 600 people, 400 people. And two years ago, there was a big cruise ship that held 1,000 people. Now, the Arctic is so fragile, they can't sustain that number of people tramping over the tundra. Some of these little plants have taken 100 years to grow. Mm. And I have seen uh, deterioration in some of the historic sites because some of the cruises are not as well patrolled and controlled as the one that I was on. And we are told absolutely what, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. But when you've got 600 people. And the other, the other thing, uh, apart from the big cruise ships, are the uh, privately owned yachts uh, that are going into these sites. They can do anything they like. They can take any artifacts. So there is a de deterioration. So if you want to go to the Arctic, go now. And responsibly. Yes. <laughs> okay, um, before I throw you out to the floor, because we've got about 10 minutes for that, I just, there's one final question I want to ask you, Barbara, which is that you, know, you, you haven't shown this work publicly until the summer. So that's four years, and, and, and then in Edinburgh, and then Orkney in the Canada House. How is it making public this work? What, does it shift your perceptions about what you might do next, or are you detached from that? Well, I think any time you have an exhibition... It's an assessment. You do your own assessment of what you've done and it gives you a chance to stand back and be a kind of a viewer rather than a participant. Mm. Because when the work's in the studio, it's so, so familiar to me and I don't tend to stop and put it on the wall and say, well, that's really quite good, isn't it? <laughs> don't do that. So, and the work is all interrelated. Uh, one, one follows on from the other. But when you see it on the wall, uh, you see what you've done. So it's like the end of term report, isn't it? <laughs> and so... I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> well, it is, actually. And so you can, you can see that. And obviously that subliminally will affect what I will do next. And, uh, I'm but, really... but subliminally, not consciously. Well, I'd, I'm, uh, no, I wouldn't do that. It, I mean, the, the exhibition in Edinburgh was so big, you know, and it encompassed four years. And I kind of can take on board the last year and the last works, and that's much more relevant to me because I've already moved on mm. from the ones that were done three years ago. Uh, but I can revisit them and say, well, I quite liked that image. I like that, how that's worked out. And think about it for the forthcoming works. Ten minutes. In fact, less, but let's do ten. Uh, other questions that people would like to ask Barbara before we all retire and have a well-earned drink on a Friday night? If you've rendered this, no, you haven't rendered everyone's speech. <laughs> question there, and a question there, yeah, just behind you there. Thank you. Hello, um, thank you very much. Um, I saw the paintings at Canada House, and I'm not sure if this is a question or an observation, but I just found the way that you somehow created this sense of sparkle and translucence and fragility and all the different mediums you were using, quite fascinating, and actually quite made me want to do it. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that's a question or a, an observation, but they're very, very beautiful if people haven't seen them. It's, a, it's really quite interesting because in the first year, I wasn't sure what I was going to do because it was all a huge surprise and also a huge change in the palette and the... The, the color temperature. And whilst many years ago, my paintings were very dark and I used a lot of black, uh, I found there was a lot of black in the Arctic and I wondered how that would work out for me. So over the three years, I had to develop different strategies to uh, get the fact that we're looking at ice. And so I looked at different kinds of paint and pigment 
and layering of materials. I've always used collage uh, in the canvases because <coughs> I absolutely hate canvas, loathe canvas. And so I've got these large scale canvases, but they're all covered in paper. So I'm really doing a very large work on paper. And then I'm adding more and more paper because I like working physically and tactilely with torn up paper, cutting paper shapes, um, in fact, some of the paintings before they go too much further, they almost look like early Matisse's with big slabs of colour. And I think, I should really leave it like this. It looks quite good. And then I think, nah, <laughs> let's go on. Well, that's really nicely put, because I, I said elemental, and I think there is an elemental element to them, but I think there is a fragility and a delicacy and a kind of luminosity. That, that And it, actually, the process is quite interesting. You, you're talking about, because... Torn paper is a more fragile medium than canvas in this instance. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. It was a nice observation and question. Uh, uh, a woman there, yeah. Hang on, here comes the mic just behind you. Oh, I'm nervous now. <laughs> um, were you able to talk to the Inuits at all? Was there any, you know, contact with them? Yes. On the first voyage, we had this uh, woman from Pond Inlet... Uh, the Canadian Arctic Settlement, and she came on the ship as uh, an Inuit advisor, and she would introduce us to in Inuit customs. She would tell stories, and uh, at one point, one night, she got hold of muktuk and cut it up into these tiny little squares in the bar and handed it round. So I tried the mock talk. It was absolutely awful. <laughs> but it might be an acquired taste. Maybe with salt it would have been better. Something like that. Uh, so she was with us, and she was terrific. She was absolutely wonderful. And so she gave us a real insight into the, the Inuit communities and how they worked, how they were in a settled community, uh, now, which is not the way that they used to live, but they still had hunting permits to go out and kill polar bears and seals and so on. And uh, she was interesting because she was the... She had married a Scottish guy who was the son of missionaries who had gone out to Pond Inlet to convert the Inuit. And she had just come back from Edinburgh, she, she, had, she, she and her husband had a sabbatical year in Edinburgh and they just lived down the road in Portobello. And I said, well, that's really fascinating. And then uh, she sent me an email just before the opening of the Edinburgh exhibition and she said, we're back in Edinburgh. Can I come and see you and let's talk and so on. And uh, so uh, we, she came to the exhibition opening and I'm hoping to see her when I go back. And on the second voyage, we had an Inuit couple from Cambridge Bay, and uh, he was an expert hunter, this enormous man. He's very big for an Inuit, and he had the whole suit on, and he could handle the rifle and the harpoon and everything. And uh, she told us uh, folk tales of, uh, of Inuit and the spirits, and how the spirits were involved in the hunting and paying tribute to the animal. So it was very, very interesting. Very interesting. And Thank uh, you. without giving too much away, um, it's triggered my interest. I think there's a great Inuit art exhibition to be done somewhere in the world. Yep. Uh, just one here, yeah. I have a Sorry, is it at the front? You're doing well. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't, don't, be hasty, but not don't rush. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I was intrigued about your comment about the environment, and I haven't seen your exhibition, so I'm, I might be speaking out of turn here, but I, I guess it's very powerful images. Um, what's your contribution to that in terms of a debate? Well, or, I think... or how consciously are you dealing with environmental issues? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm always conscious of it, and more so as the, the voyages progressed. And I'm very interested in what's happening. Uh, my paintings aren't about that, but I'm... Con That's what I'm saying. I'm, I might yeah. be speaking from a point of view of not the right knowledge, but it, it seems that they are that. Yes. And I guess that's, you know, yeah. how could you 
use this to excite the debate? Well, I hope I'm doing that, you know, by talking to, to you tonight to let you know what's happening in the Arctic and to hopefully encourage you to go there, you know, and see for yourself what's happening and the, the way in which these communities are having to change because both the governments in Greenland and in Canada are being encouraging the Inuit communities to settle in different places so that they can be supplied, so that they can have access to education and medical facilities and so on. But in the last voyage, I became much more conscious of the problem of the encroachment of modern life on the communities. If you go into a supermarket, in, in both in Greenland and in Canada, you've got everything there. Biscuits, cakes, sweets. And so they're bringing these into their diet. And instead of having a traditional diet, you know, they're, they're increasing in weight. And the kids are getting chubby and everything. All the, all the things that we have problems with here. The old uh, Inuit diet supplied them with everything that they needed, including vitamin C. And, and other vitamins. And Franklin, of course, didn't take that on board no. when he... I guess I was thinking of the blue planet and the, the actual bigger impact on the planet. Some of these pictures are very evocative, and I guess I'd encourage you to go back and maybe with a, take a different lens slightly, at a, at a global lens. Yeah. Well, there's one painting that, uh, isn't in, that, isn't in, that I can think of that isn't in Canada House... And it is uh, basically a landscape with things on the beach. You know, what you won't see on these beaches in these very remote places so far is a plastic bottle. You won't see that. You'll see bones and uh, fossils and so on. But it's only a matter of time before these things are going to arrive. The thing that did strike me was the amount of barrels, iron barrels, that were distributed everywhere because it's not only the Inuit that are taking these barrels with them when they're hunting to supply their these little buggy things that they use, but it's scientific uh, groups that are taking these things and leaving the barrels in the Arctic. On which... OK, we have one more question. Gentleman there. I was going to say on which depressing note, but maybe this is more optimistic. <laughs> yeah, there is. But. I, I'm sure it must have occurred to you before you took the first voyage that you could enter into painter's block in that there's no guarantee that out of it something will come that actually inspires you. I uh, never considered that. Well, it's a good question. Have you ever Has had it, painter's block? No. You've, you've never had it, but ha, no. have there been um, places, for instance, possibly California, that were more difficult for you than others, like Arizona, where you seem to produce a lot of work in Arizona? California seems to be slim pickings. Well, it's quite, that's quite interesting. It's a two-part answer here. Uh, the first one was uh, my husband was out in California because he was writing and the first uh, house that he rented uh, was quite close to Malibu I thought, God, what am I going to do in Malibu? So I was out for six, Tough, isn't it? Yeah. six weeks at the time <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh God, this is awful it's just terrible it's, and, and he said, well, it sort of looks like Spain do you not think you're not inspired by that? And I said, no so I took, off for the, I took off for the beach, and I thought, I'll draw the sea. And there's these wonderful lifeguard huts, which look like spiders. And I became fascinated by them on this beach, this vast beach called Zuma Beach. Yeah, Zuma Beach. And uh, then I realized they're all different. They've all got wee characters. So I started doing a whole series based on that, and based on the... The, the impressions, they've got pieces of sculpture set into the walls and there'll be an occasional figure and so on. So I think it's a case of 
allowing yourself to look and to observe, uh, and then something happens. There's no use saying, there's nothing here for me. You know, you can get something out of anything. But the other thing is the Anasazi thing. And I'm sorry that my husband isn't here to hear me saying this. But we'd, we'd traveled back and forward from Los Angeles to New Mexico and to Santa Fe several times, back forward, back forward. And all of it desert. And I said, I, I'm not interested in the Grand Canyon. Can't stand it. Right. It's very nice. Very nice. Nice. It's very, it's very nice. But it's too big. You know, it's big. Thank goodness I didn't go to the Grand Canyon after what Hockney did. <laughs> and so we're going back and forth. And he said, look, there's the petrified forest. Uh, why don't we go and look at the petrified forest? I said, I hate petrified wood. I hate fossils, anything like that. But okay, we'll go, we'll go in. And of course, there was a petrified wood shop that you could buy stuff. And there was bits of petrified wood around the place. But the thing that immediately struck me were the, the rocks with the petroglyphs and the pictographs of the Anasazi, which the, the park authorities were guarding you know, like gold dust. It was only after about four visits we got into the little side bits and so on. And that started off a long study. And I never in my wildest dreams would have thought that that's what I would do. But it's just that sort of trigger. And as Tim uh, was asking, the trigger will happen, you know, when something else comes in to, to take my mind and to inspire uh, but there's always something in everything. And I remember my students at Edinburgh College of Art, uh, sorry, Glasgow, saying, well, I've got a sketchbook. What am I going to do in it? What, what am I supposed to do with this? I said, just, you know, sit down of an evening and just draw the furniture. That'll do. That's a start. And something happens from there. You know, I've, in all my, all my times, you know, I've, I've been fascinated by certain things, plant houses, gardens, formality of creative, um, definitely gardens, and made, made landscapes. Uh, and so there's always something. But I, I may well go back to, say, an industrial subject matter, which I've done before. Um, I'm fascinated by docks and where people work, harbours, people who create something and they're moving stuff around. So I may well go back to that. What's extraordinary amongst many things talking to you, Barbara, is that you, you're clearly someone who knows their own mind and you have strong and beautifully vehement opinions about certain things, but you're open to so much. There's a kind of curiosity there, which is a wonderful uh, tension, I think. So um, thank you for sharing this part of the magical journey or the journey to the, the magical wilderness. Um, come back again in a year or two and tell us where you've got to and um, meanwhile let's um, all of you who'd like to join us for a drink in the uh, gallery 10 through the vault through the schools uh, where you can get a signed copy of the book if you'd like or see some of the work but let's um, join together in thanking Barbara for this great talk. thank you very much thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this recording Feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. 